Welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. This is episode 39. Today is a bit of a twist. We're not going to talk about the Romans, but we're going to talk about the allure of archaeology. In fact, a bit of a mystery involving what we have titled Bob Carr's Excellent Adventure. At Starbucks, I ran into a John Winmuller who works at the patent office. Nancy and I volunteered to watch his bike as he went in to get his coffee on his morning commute. We were usually there in the morning and many conversations took place. Mention electric vehicles and you get John's attention. John mentioned something about a mystery with his father-in-law who went down to Guatemala in 1959. John is married to Bob's daughter, Sarah. There was something about what John called an arrival bowl. It had to do with the ancient Mayas and a pencil rubbing his father-in-law, Bob Carr, made of the bowl while sitting in a field tent. Around the bowl was a carving of warriors bedecked with feathers and spears, carrying gifts to a royal personage sitting on what looks like a throne. Well, there's not much to do in a jungle, and years later, the documentation made by the University of Pennsylvania of that very same bowl didn't quite match up with what was documented by Bob Carr. It was John that noticed the discrepancy. He pointed it out to his father-in-law, and he pointed it out to me. We'll get to that later in the podcast. He still has the etching. Also, the bowl disappeared. It did, really. John likes a mystery, and so do I. So we went to talk to Bob Carr, who he lovingly refers to as Pop. Bob Carr was a Navy veteran. In the late 50s, he flew seaplanes. This was during the Korean War. Aircraft and sailors in those days watched coastlines and ocean approaches from the air. This is just a few years before massive radar coverage and satellite surveillance. Bob flew the West Sea, an arm of the Pacific Ocean between the Chinese mainland and the Korean Peninsula. After leaving the Navy, he worked in an architectural office in D.C., where he saw an opportunity to do surveying down in Guatemala. In 1959, he headed to Tikal, a major pre-Columbian center of the Mayas. This is 6th century B.C. to 10th century A.D. This architectural find was a remnant of a culture that had advances in architecture, astronomy, medicine, and math. Now, some of you may have visited this location on a tourist excursion and feel yourself quite the adventurer, but Bob was there when much of it had to be hacked out of the jungle. He was there to survey the grounds, and truth be told, on-the-ground mapping turned out to be more accurate than satellite surveillance. This was discovered years later. I think what is really cool about this is the adventure of it. He survives the Navy, and volunteers to be a pilot for the archaeologists and winds up surveying in the jungle. John and I dropped by his house. On the walls were maps of Dakal, maps and elevations and photos of those young people that dared illness and discomfort for an adventure. 
and the possibilities of discovery that is now for Bob a little over 70 years ago. He still remembers it. Now he shares it with us. If you like a good story, stick around. We save the mystery of the arrival bowl for the very end. Where did you go? I went down to the rainforest of Guatemala for almost two years. Voice of Bob Carr. Uh, they needed, they were working on a, it was an archaeologist from the University of Pennsylvania. What was the year? 1959. I had an architectural engineering degree. I had got out of the Navy after, been in the Navy for four years after college, and I got out. And I read a magazine article titled Great Finds in Guatemala. And it had photo, Life magazine, it had photos. It all sounded so interesting. And uh, so I sat down at his typewriter and typed a letter to the University of Pennsylvania about the article. They were the ones that were doing it, making these amazing finds that the article was about. And said maybe I could, and it, and it had overemphasized the difficulties of working in that remote, difficult place, you know. And there were no roads. You had to fly in all the supplies and everything from the coast. So I wrote and typed an article and said that I just got out of the Navy a little while ago and I had an architectural engineering degree and I could fly. Maybe I could fly stuff for them or something. So boy, in about a week, a week and a half, I got an answer. And, and they put me in touch with the guy who worked for the geologic survey for the government here in town, D.C. And he called me and got together with him that weekend and he said, but Architectural engineering, what does that cover? And it covered surveying. They needed a surveyor. They didn't need a pilot. So I ended up going down to... Well, they got more than a surveyor, didn't they? Oh, they had a lot of archaeologists, you know. From yeah, but with you, they got uh, a pilot and a surveyor. They never used a pilot. <laughs> but, you know, it did help, I think, give me a better way of, better visualization of the territory than maybe a lot of people would have had. So I found the mapping fascinating and I did a good job and some people can't or won't. Well, somehow I think that would that would help in the sense that you had a, an idea of what the ground looks like from the air. After all, you're going down there before satellite mapping. Yes, yes. It was totally by measuring and, uh, you know, rods and drawing as you, you know, Yes. As, as one of the guys said, 50 years later, I got in touch with one of the guys who had actually started a map. It was a map of these, this ancient city, which is just like looking into, into a bush of solid leaves. You know, you can't see your hand in front of your face. So the buildings are invisible to people who just walk through it, but they're there. But all crumbled on the surface, you see, and overgrown with bushes and vines and things with thorns and... So a lot of people survey them, but they just do it by kind of guesswork. And, and we actually did it like you would survey your yard, me and my helpers. And, we, and so later, one of the guys, oh, he got written up in an article just about 10 years ago. People heard of it again after 50, 60 years. And, and, and the people who are doing today's mapping by aerial LIDAR, they call it, and... Uh, it, it sees through the forest, in effect, the sound waves. And, and uh, 
So that's take, it's very modern, up-to-date. So people take that as the last word. So one of the guys who did one of these, he said, it's amazing. The, the, the map of Tikal is the only place that, where it's, it's amazingly accurate. And when I talked to Jim Hazard, who had actually started the map, he said, well, no, they don't realize, he said, that we actually measured. No wonder it's accurate. We didn't, we didn't look at it through a through a radar that bounced up 10,000 feet and bounced back down again, we've measured it on the ground, which is true. Hmm. And altogether, I, he had worked there two years, two seasons, I should say, the rainy season they used to stop. And then I finished it in another two years. So we took, you know, we didn't try to do it in a month or, or a week. <laughs> and, the, and the museum, Penn Museum, was doing the work, was in charge of it were willing to have us work for them for, you know, it's four years of having an employee with about three or four helpers. So you were there two years? Uh, so I was here the last two years, yeah, of the mapping, four-year effort. Was it, uh, did, did you experience any difficulties, or did you just young enough to be able to do it? I was young enough, it didn't, uh, didn't, didn't matter, actually. I think now I read about the diseases, and we knew there were diseases, and we were... You know, but we drank out of puddles of uh, puddles on the ground. You know, for we didn't have bottled water. <laughs> I I just want to share. I had an uncle uh, on, on my British side, who uh, uh, he went down the Amazon. Mm. He was the only survivor. <laughs> wow! Of, of an expedition, and when he uh. came back to England, he they asked him, "How did you survive? Everybody else died on the boat." Because they all got uh, yellow uh, fever. Yeah, yellow, there is yellow fever, and there's dengue fever, and there's a yeah, number of he, he, he and malaria. He, he said that the only way he survived is he drank the entire time. <laughs> anyway. Biggest part of Guatemala, really, the lowlands. And the rest of Guatemala, the, where tourists go, is the highlands. So how do you, how do you map it? an area, especially when it has a lot of brush? And what? Did you have to clear it away, or did... I show you a, a, a drawing. Voice of John Windmuller. Yeah, and there's stuff on this wall that, that's uh, maps, uh, the map I think, along with other stuff. In the morning we would eat in a little thatched eating place, and then we'd head off into the ruins to work, and that's me with my instrument. And then three of those guys were my help would be my helpers. One carrying the rod, one carrying the tripod, and one carrying the so-called plane table, which you actually mapped. And well, this is a fantastic map. Oh, and this is taken from the work we did while I was still there. The map wasn't done yet. This was this was done to be tourists were beginning to show up. With there was regular about the second year there were regular flights. Tourists would come in and, and they feed them there. And so he made this for it and had it printed up for placemats for the tourists who <laughs> came to the ruins. And so I got one of them. Wow. <laughs> is that the map? Which is taken. This is the map itself reduced. Yeah. It's much bigger. So we, we, would, we would go out and the, the guys I worked with at, at the beginning were two experienced locals. A lot of the people around there had no schooling. My best man had three years of grade school, so he was well-educated, but smart as a whip. And so they understood, and I had high school Spanish, which, you know, is not much. Well, how, how far did high school Spanish take you? <laughs> well, 
working with people on a daily basis, it didn't require continual talk, you know, so it didn't hinder us, it just made it a little clumsy. And and they were the greatest guys. They they corrected me all the time. They weren't. They were teaching you. They weren't, sh- you know, shy or deferential or anything because mm-hmm. these were country guys, and. Uh, and you were practically a kid. <laughs> yeah, so I was like one of them, except I was the boss, and and I knew how to use these instruments. I taught one of them while I was there. How old were you at the time? Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. I wasn't a kid. I'd gone through college and had four years in the navy and had worked a little bit. Right. You want some water? Yeah, please. Ice? No, I don't know. So, that's about it. And, and, you know, they knew what they were doing. And later on, I felt bad about it that, that when they would write about it or something, they'd say, the so-and-so found by car while mapping, you know, some car monument or something. They made all kinds of monuments and altars and things we'd find. And, you know, I never found them. I was in charge, but the people who found them were my help, who were running around uh, investigating every bump in the, in the ground, you know, and saying, hey, Bob, uh, here, here's a mound, you know, and then, then he'd check it out. I'm in the middle of it, six meters long, and I, would, and I would take the height and the difference in height, not just by his guesswork. So we actually did, because the rod, which I would look through, the instrument was called a plane table. You worked with this, it's like a, what do you call it? And you looked through it, but it yeah. had measured in all directions, you know. And it sat on the table, which had the map on it, and you, it moved it. So every time you started, you had to make the, make the it had a built-in straight edge. You had to line up with the two dots where you ended up the day before and make sure the table was level and in the same spot so that elevation, and then you'd go on from there. At the end of the day, you'd mark the places where you'd been the day before, so the next day you could actually start in the same place. And bit by bit, we just measured everything there was, and we got pretty good, or they got pretty good at recognizing all kinds of things that aren't, wouldn't be recognizable to someone just tumbling over it. And you had to, like... Um you know, uh, cut your way through yeah, this forest. Yeah, and every man you see in that picture, he draws them wrong, he draws them like saw blades, but every man, including me, carried a machete in a harness, and just to walk you had to... Do you run into any snakes? Yeah, but not, they're mostly nocturnal, you know, we didn't... Oh. Occasionally oh. he did, but we were always <laughs> careful, you know, there's certain things like you never step over a log or a stick or anything. You don't step over anything you can't see the ground. I think it's second nature, you know, mm-hmm. because there might be a snake back there. So you always would step on top of any... And when you were doing surveying, which is 62 or somewhere... Well, 59 and 60, 59 and 60. Uh, uh, you had to do all the calculations... Yeah, yeah, in your head or on paper, or the or it was built into the instrument. If you you didn't have to, yeah, we didn't have. I'm not remembering well. I did keep and I have them little notebooks which filled with numbers, 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 and that's yeah. the kind of calculation we did as we. But it became such second nature that I, you know, I could, frankly can't really remember doing it except I have those little notebooks. We, we would see the students, the architecture students at Penn State, doing the same thing. One person has this rod that has black and white stripes on it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
and then the other person is distant with their, I forget what the tool is called. Well, ours was called an Adelaide. A, Adelaide. A, a, there may be names for various varieties, yeah. It was pretty easy, actually, but you had to be careful and pay attention to detail or you get all screwed up, you know, and have to, so, and it happened a few times. You have to go way back to someplace else and try run this and try from here mm-hmm. and see if it. And sometimes it might set you back a week if you really hadn't paid attention. At the beginning, oh, wow. I had a few days like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so you're surveying the area so you can so uh, someone can uh, recreate on paper what it looked like, what the exact measurement. Which is what provide. that is, except that's a very small aerial scrunch down view yeah the the original each we did nine maps about this big at a scale of one to two thousand everything was metric that's something that's interesting we were totally ignorant of metric coming from the u.s you know within a week you got used to it it didn't take I think there's a lot of Americans now that are totally ignorant. Oh, yeah. I see kilometers. I'm like, please tell me miles. I can't. I can't can't think in kilometers. (laughs) But we worked entirely in in centimeters and meters and and millimeters. And and it's surprising how quickly we got used to it because everything was in that system, you know. So the tourist map up there on the wall is, is just for purpose, like kind of more general purposes purposes for tourists. Oh, that one that we use this placemat. Yeah. Oh, and there's dozens, if not hundreds, of tourist maps now for sale. Right. More or less, much prettier than that, but more or less accurate or inaccurate or yeah. showing the wrong things, you know, because yeah. they couldn't show everything. It's, so, but thousands of... It didn't have to be so accurate because as a tourist, you're looking at things that right. have been excavated exactly. and cleared out. But for purposes of archaeology, they wanted in a to thick be... jungle, you need much more precise. And we took it seriously. You know, maybe we could have got by not being so serious because the archaeologists couldn't tell. But mm. both me and Hazard, the guy who did it before me, and then I had last year, it was taking too long. I could see there was a lot to do, and, and uh, the boss... Ed Shook from Penn deci- had decided that we really should make the map a little bigger than nine by nine square kilometers, three by three, make it four by four by just going another 500 meters all, all around. But that, you know, nine to 16 is significant, is, is, is a lot of difference. So, we, yeah. Huh. So, so did the project grow? So it grew. It was ill-defined when we started. Yeah, and then it extended to two years. So that's when, at the end of that year, I realized, you know, to do that extra stretch all the way around, and we negotiated it so it's less accurate than the inner part. Um, Me and the the surveyors negotiated with the boss. (laughs) No, no, what do you mean you negotiated with the boss? Well, well, setting the, the... you know, the technical person, like the CEO, uh, had already decided it would be nine square kilometers. So you're on, you're on site, the technical person's on site. Oh, we're all on site. Yeah, and... And so Shook decided it would be good because there was something interesting here that we'd found, and another thing, a little further than our map was going to cover. And it wouldn't be that much more to just go 500 more, which is, however, it adds up nine, 16 yeah, to 9, square it. 7 square kilometers <laughs> yeah. of, of extra space. And, and then I, and I was, you know, 
I was getting sensible enough and I realized I wasn't getting any younger. And uh, I did have to make a living and uh, this was fun, but to do it for 10 more years or something was, was ridiculous. And one of them trying to, one of the other archeologists who was sort of a co-chief, he, he said, well, come back to Penn and you can take archeology span courses for free and you can get a degree in archaeology and just switch to this. But then to make a living in archaeology, it means you're either rich or you teach. Mm. And I couldn't see being a college teacher of archaeology. I know, I already had a degree in architecture and I had a, boss, a job waiting for me if I could settle were you being, down. Were you being paid while you were on site? What? The two years you were there? Yes, I, well, that's, that was negotiated too. I started for nothing, room and board and transportation. That was just to see if I, you know, if I could really oh, yeah, yeah. do it. And so in a month or two, they changed it to 125 bucks a month, plus room and board. Hmm. And uh, Now, wait a minute, 125 bucks in 1950s. Uh, yeah, what did a loaf of bread cost? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot. Of, if I was very cheap by back here, people thought that was ridiculous. But then for the second year, they... That was $125, $125 per month? Yeah. Had been, that had been okay. Yeah, so the next year they raised it to uh, 200 or, fi- I mean, 250 or 500 I don't know. It was decent. And uh, and I had no expenses, you know. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. I'd left my car with a cousin in Florida. Yeah. Did you get letters? So then that? I said, oh, I'll come back if... I was thinking the timing, you know, and I didn't want to make a career of archaeology, really, because it's pretty cheap. You have to teach. That was the only way in those days you could get an income from it. Like Bill Coe was a rich family. He didn't have to work at all. And Ed Shook had other money. And so big archaeologists only had money from, it wasn't a career. Were Were you getting letters from home? No. Well, yes. My dad was still, it was in the Navy again. They were in Trinidad by that time. And mail was pretty good. Mail actually came to that place. Hmm. You know, where there was air, air mail. It's amazing, yes. <laughs> okay, so so to survey this area, you had to remove... Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but to survey an area, you had to remove as much foliage as you could. Yes, but my, my got, once I got used to how, to how it was, you know, a week, it didn't take long, and my workmen knew what I was doing, they could cut with their machetes, you know, just cutting the big leaves and, and palm things, and now and then a small tree. And, uh, or if there'd be a big tree, they might say, you know, Bob, let's, let's go on the other end of this mound, and mm-hmm. then, then you won't have to, you So know. They, were, they were cutting uh, peepholes. Right. Or they could cut. Yes, they were cutting lines of vision. Which, lines of vision, which they were very good at. Of which you could take your measurements. Yes. Down. So you didn't have to cut down. You, you we didn't have to clear it at all. You didn't have to clear all of it. After a, a, a few weeks, a person might not even notice, depending on you know this. Because mm-hmm. I, I I see these. I still see magazine articles, where. They they show and they're still, to my understanding anyway, they're still finding 
cities under oh, the yeah. foliage. That's true. And they show up. I just saw one in a magazine recently where they said, here's what we saw. And it was all greenery. And they said, here's what was discovered underneath. And they, they removed yeah. as much as possible. That's, that's the LIDAR you're talking about. Yeah. LIDAR means light detection and ranging. It is a technology used to create high-resolution models of ground elevation with vertical accuracy of 10 centimeters, which means four inches. It's a system. It's getting re- it had a big article in the Post just a week ago huh. that sees, in effect, sees through. That's not the right word, but it that's, uh, sees through the foliage down yeah. to the ground. And it measures the distance accurately. Yeah, well, yeah, and, but it per- mostly shows it in a 3D photo, sort of like the one that someone drew over there. Which people re- look at my maps who aren't used to it, and not you know for, for out of interest, and they don't get any idea of the, although it's shown in numbers and, and brown lines on the map, but most people can't read that at all in the sense of seeing it other than a, yeah, plane. Uh, and that uh, computer imagery has changed. So so the so the lidar thing really knocks people for a loop. They said, oh, I, you know, they, it really is amazing to me because I could, I was used to reading mm. maps as they were. But most people rarely read more than a road map, you know, for, and that, even that, no no more. Yeah. It's all on their car. So, yeah, so the LIDAR shows it in, in 3D, like, and you can, it even exaggerates the, the change in topography. So things that, like, there's a lot of, we call them causeways. It's a misnomer. Uh, they're more, they had no vehicles. And, but, um, so these causeways were more for ceremonies and things. But they typically would have a wall on one side and a wall on the other. And they might get wider or towards a big temple and end at, a, you know, some religious place. And uh, they look, so, they, so when they write about it now, but most people, who, even who visit Tikal, now that it's, it's, a lot of it is cleared, they don't see those causeways. You know, no one, the pavement is all, it was, if it had pavement, it was just lime, lime, and so it would be all broken up by now. Uh-huh. And so people don't, but the LIDAR shows it because it puts together lots and lots of little dots, not just I would measure one dot here, and then when the causeway would turn, I would get another dot where it turned. But the LIDAR gets about a million dots in between here. And so if, if half of it has been, if it just a, was a low thing the first place in a thousand years of rain and hurricanes, it's, in places it's gone and they're just little bits. And I might recognize them and show it with dotted line and the real thing and dotted, you know, guessing. But now the lidar shows it all. Just as, you know, even if it's yeah. been down to an inch, it seems to pick it up right. because it's continuous. It's it's programmed to notice things that it can see that flatness, that levelness yes. that, that wouldn't exist in nature. And Whereas, so, and so even yeah. even though you're on the ground, you can't see some things like I mean, big pyramids and things you can see, of course. But so the what they're seeing is there's these causeways all over the place. Even in places where archaeologists worked and they never realized there were these things that the LIDAR shows because of this. That's interesting. You you know. Yeah, you could see two, you could see 10 places that are basically at the same exact level like a road, but you wouldn't notice it. 
No, when you're walking through the jungle, yeah. you know, you don't notice that uh, 15 minutes ago you passed a, because your head can't do that, but yeah. the LIDAR does. Yeah. And it shows it as a continuous line. So some ways I it irritates me because they rave about it. Our map was more accurate than that. But it shows <laughs> things that, that we couldn't really couldn't really see with just your eyes, especially when it's all covered with brush and bushes and trees and Yeah, I know there there was a uh a uh I don't know what the proper term for her is, but she uh I suppose an archaeologist, uh she she called herself a satellite archaeologist, or she used she used satellites to, oh, s- yeah. to send image to pictures down to the earth, and she she started amazing her her colleagues. She said, "There's a town right there." You know, <laughs> how do you know that? He says, "Look at my satellite image." What I'm trying to remember is a uh, article that I read in National Geographic. It's about. Sarah Parkak, who uh, is listed as a space archaeologist and Egyptologist, who turned her love of history and the natural world into a career that uses satellite imaging technology to reveal the remains of ancient Egyptian civilizations. Question of what you call a town and what you call it, what's just a suburb or, you know. So you always get different numbers. And, but the, but it was generally a lot more settled than you would think when you uh, go today, even if you're care- very careful. Have you have you seen uh, pictures lately of the site that you worked at? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Does it? Bring... It looks so much like it because it emphasizes the biggest buildings. I I just can, I can tell instantly what it is because of the five or six dozen, let's say, of the biggest things I. You know. Okay, now what's this thing about an arrival boat? What is up with that? I, I, John, John told me about it, and and uh, I mean, did you find this bowl, or did you? What happened was the archaeologists in they're they're looking for pottery and stone things because there's no metal, and uh, yeah, that's that's the remains that you find from ancient people living is what things that don't melt in the rainstorm, I guess, and don't rot from insects. So wooden things rot, and the only things that don't, that stay, are pottery and uh, ceramics, that is, and, uh, and uh, stone. So they dig around buildings. They, once someone finds that sometimes a building, they, they already knew that by the time I was there, it was often a, a memorial building, and, and there would be a, a grave in the middle down in a pit or something, bones you'd find, mm. and things with them. So they were going after those kind of things. That's a lot of their archaeology was that you can date those, all those things, you know, and tell about the style of them and things, compare it with other ruins. So that's a lot of their work is that kind of stuff. So they dug this one grave. It happened on how they got focused on it. Maybe something stuck up. But as you pointed out, you know, why they call it, they call it in the book, it's not a, they classify the pottery as being, oh, problematic. Yeah, prob- yeah and problematic. <laughs> they didn't well, know what the hell. Yeah, in this book it yeah. says, vessels from burials, caches, and problematic deposits. Three places where you find okay, now, pottery, now when you burials. Say, uh, okay, when you say problematic to me, I, I think, okay, there are issues. 
Oh, no, it means with them, they can't figure out why that there stuff is, is buried there. It oh, okay. doesn't look like a, there's no bones, and uh, doesn't okay. look funer okay. funereal, and it doesn't look silly. What's the other category? Burials, caches, and problematic. Caches are things like ceremonial. Uh, this is the tenth day of when so-and-so and -so, when the, our Lord assumed the throne, mm -hmm. and, we're, and they may have a big ceremony, and they make bury a some treasures, and they call that the cache, C-A-C-H-E. Mm. -E. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what are, the, what are the three terms again, just so we, we uh, <laughs> place it on record here? Uh, Burials, caches, and problematic deposits. Burials, caches, and problematic deposits. So this, this, this so-called arrival bowl was in, the, in a, a little excavation they did of where there was pottery and things, and none of it made any sense. It wasn't a burial. Burial means of, of a person. And it wasn't a cache. a cache, you know, ceremonial cache. It was just odds and ends, including some nice pieces of broken pottery. Okay, so when did you lay eyes on the arrival bowl? My work involved working in the field all during good weather and, and, and enough light to see what you're doing. And then working in one of what we call the laboratory buildings, they were thatched wooden things with plastic uh, stretched across the openings for windows. They were our work rooms, and they had tables, and all the stuff they would find each day, each archaeologist would have a project, or maybe two or three on a project. So there were a number going at times, and they would have a piece of the table, this long table, long, it's long. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, put their stuff on for the day. And then they had to sort it all through and decide what it was and make drawings and record before it was sent to Guatemala City or wherever. So I also had a little space that I would, to, because I, the, the stuff I did during the day was all very scat, sketchy and hurry. And then I would smooth it out and put numbers where I hadn't put numbers and do my day's work on, on this. You'd, you'd put your thoughts together. Right? Yeah other than just what I did while yeah. we were working. So I would work there a lot, and so I'd see all, and, and generally the table, I have to push broken pottery out of the way. To, and so one day, there were some new broken pieces all over the place, and part of them was this, and it was obviously it's a beautiful, I'd never really seen the pottery that was beautifully carved like that. You know, it's often painted, usually broken, yeah. But not like that. And, and so, and, and another artist, the guy who did that map that I said was a, a place map, mm -hmm. Norm Johnston. He was an architect older than me, but he was really into archaeology. Seemed to have, I don't know where he made a living from. Nice guy, though. And he would come see how he, he didn't map, he worked as a general archaeologist and, and artist of things they found and saw. So he saw this and and I was admiring it, and, and, and he was the one, I, I, I can't really remember, but he was the one who got me started on rubbing it. Uh. As I, I didn't remember it when I first read about when I began to, I, got, I heard from a lot of archaeologists about this after I wrote to Penn about it. So a lot of them were saying what great thing it was, and a couple mentioned this Johnston uh, and now I'm as I as I think I remember he was he actually showed me how to do it, ah, and maybe did a little bit of it that I, because he it turned out he was helping them build a new tourist building, ah. 
Ah. It had a plaster wall behind where the sink was going to be. And he liked some of these figures, and he took one of these figures from the arrival and board. made it like life size. Ah. I have a photo somewhere of him directing someone who's carving it on the wall. And, and I'm thinking that's not a coincidence. It's coming to me more recently, actually, that that. I remember when he was doing that thing, he was taking it off of, it's obvious it came off of this. Yeah. And that was probably the time when he was talking about and showing me how, and I decided and I finished making this rubbing of it, of the bowl, which was in pieces, actually, you know. Ah. Uh, not little so, tiny pieces, but... So you would take a... I want to use the word shard. I don't know. Uh, yeah, right. we didn't use that. But. All right, all, all piece. And, and uh, you'd rub... A piece, a and paper, with paper over it, with, with pencil, with, with pencil or a piece of lead, or, and then you'd see if you could find the other piece and rub yeah. that. Yeah. Well, we had it. already, by the time I was doing it, we had already put together all that we could. So, so was this bowl uh, reconstructed? Not at the time I was there. Okay, but it, it was. It was yeah. in pieces, all in one place. Its place, you know. Mar- on the on the counter where all the broken pottery was, mm. oh, okay. some of it not broken or hardly broken, so there are all kinds of stuff that I got to see, and I would ask about them when I was doing my work. So that was around lying on the counter, and I decided for whatever reason that, that it was worth. Well, after all, we had no nothing to do with our time. We had no radio. We had no electricity. There was no, there was no radio. There was no TV. No, was... Uh, let's see, nothing to do but work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I spent my time for a while doing this rubbing with uh, with uh, Ron Johnson, coaching me or urging. I can't, I can't remember really, but I I realize now that. He played a key role, I think. I remembered someone had showed me how to do it, and then I, when I started looking through my old photos and things and saw him working on that carving, I remember that. And, uh-huh. and the so, carving is definitely from this bowl. What do you think the rubbing depicted? Well... You can, you can look at your notes if you want. No, I, I know what I thought even at the time, and I think I wasn't one, you know, I was just one of several people. I, what, I never remember talking to the guy who excavated it, but there was only about a dozen of us in total, you know, including the boss. And uh, of us, I mean, tech, people who weren't just laborers. What did you think the... the oh, what did I think of? I thought it was... I, I didn't, didn't think of it as the arrival ball, but I said it shows people from Teotihuacan, which is up in central Mexico, long ways away when you don't have wheeled vehicles nor horses nor anything. Also Mayan? Not Mayan. Not Mayan, huh. Proto-Aztec or something like that. Even the Aztecs called them foreigners, but they had come down from further north, probably related to North American Indians, Hmm. and uh, developed this civilization called Teotihuacan right outside of Mexico City, it so happens. And uh, people go to Mexico City often take a day to go out to Teotihuacan. Well, these people who, they were the ones who introduced to the Mayans something that's very Mexican, which was the spear thrower. You had a, you hold a thing and it has a hook on the end, so you can throw a spear much further because of the leverage. 
And that was considered a high-tech weapon in those days when right. people had... Oh, God, I actually saw... Oh, my gosh, I looked out my window the other day, and I think it's something similar, but somebody was giving their dog a, a run in the park, and, and they had a... a um, it was yeah, kind of a... A ball chucker. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what we, that's that's what we call like ours. A, like a spear thrower. Yeah. Ball, ball chucker, the ball gun. The dog loved it, by the way. The ball tag, the ball, and she it, this long plastic. I guess it's plastic, yeah. uh, with a cup at the end, and she put the ball in. The dog would go nuts and, and would fling it, and it would it would take that ball almost across the oh yeah the park. You can throw it three times as far as as you could. So have. the Mayans used to in the early days just you know if they had battles they had spears they had to stab each other with them. They didn't throw them, or if they did, it was. But the but the Teotihuacan people has a has they call it an idle idle, mm. and uh, well, that's what the Mexicans call it. It's an Aztec word, idle idle, and uh, they threw spears, and they, so that indicates them plus their costume. But I didn't know that. But I knew the spear thrower thing by then, and I'd learned it down there. And the Mayans didn't have that. And then, so there, these these people from Teotihuacan are coming to a to Tikal, I suppose, offering greetings or money or conquest. So people have many theories they spin about it. It's still, all books written about the relationship between Teotihuacan and the Mayan area, because later on, in, or about this time, they don't know the exact date of this. Anyhow, there was a throw over of the Mayan nobility in Tikal uh-huh. and a new nobility was started with the Teotihuacan name you know and so mm. within a, another hundred years they were all writing and speaking Mayan again but there was a kind of huh. there's a continual off and on influence from that place so far away but it was the big civilization at that time in, in the new world yeah so can you describe generally what's being shown? I mean, there seems to be a ruler and then people approach. Oh, I don't him. know much about that. What I thought, though, was it did show people, these, these, these are the spear throwers, the atlatls, and this, the headdress is very much not to call kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. here they're coming mm-hmm. to someone who's sitting at the front of a, a Mayan-style temple as opposed to... A, the architecture is a little different on, uh, well, whatever, uh, the Mayan too. But it's all kind of mysterious. But I could see they were, it was supposed to be Teotihuacan people coming, mm-hmm. greeting. Some say, con- you know, temporary conquering, maybe a date, date actually dates from that period. Ah. I'm, I've come in, in to welcome you to our new political system, which will be <laughs> run by us. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so someone so, later who saw so, well, this, who saw this rubbing, said, "In fact, oh, this thing here, which didn't show on, didn't show in this book, and it's one of the things that John noticed. But this guy is is very much is the Teotihuacan standard with this oh. round thing and a pointed thing on top. And oh. someone, the archaeologist, sent me a, a painting from Teotihuacan itself, showing almost the same." This is this is the image on the far left of the of yeah. the rubbing. The guy who's holding, and there isn't much of him. 
And I'm damned if I can remember, you know, the detail. Why is that? Why is that drawn as if the pieces don't exist? Did I actually just imagine that it must be? <laughs> or it had broken away, but you could see the outline. Where it had, of yeah, I can't remember those kind of details. It's 60 years ago, and it wasn't my main job. It was just something I did for my amusement because I they were all recording it, you know, with cameras and lights and everything. It, one, so this was just for me. Actually, there's. There's films that they took. There's a lot of them on the internet, aren't there? Yeah, there's a couple of, of, of key pieces of footage where you can actually you can actually see the bowl. Oh. And I think the only image that I've seen is is a short snippet of video. Yeah. So the bowl got reconstructed, and I presume you presume when this article appeared, one of the I belong to this pre-Columbian society which meets monthly, and. Uh, the people, the old members, all know when I came to work. First joined them, I had worked at Tikal. So, one of them said, "Bob," and she sent me an e- yeah, a copy of this ma- architectural magazine that had this, had this illustration in it. That's right, you saw that. Yeah. And I saw that, and that's when she sent to me because she knew I'd worked at Tikal, and that that was it. Period. And, and uh, John happened to be here, and I was looking, and, and I said, "Oh, I have that." I remember making that bowl and making a rubbing of it, and I sure enough, it was still in my papers. Amazing. Yeah. You mean the rubbing? Yeah, the actual rubbing, and showed it to John, and he noticed the, the differences. Like, well, this is a pretty accurate yeah. print of the rubbing as it was. Yeah, but I could—I mean, the rubbing—you can see a lot of detail because it's More life, than, life size. But the small picture in the, the magazine—I could—I took a picture on my phone and I could zoom in. And then I started noticing little differences between them that could be significant to the, the narrative, kind of, or the, the, the history. So, what, kind of, what kind of differences? Well, the one that sticks, there, there are a couple, but the one that sticks out is um, the guy standing right in front of the, the seated figure. He's put it in, in, the, in the first, you know, image, the kind of black and white one. It almost looks like he's, um, like, powdering his nose, sort of. But... But in the new one, it looks like, oh, he has a nose ring, maybe, yeah, or a mask thing, and he's maybe sticking something in his mouth, like a like testing food for the king, or who knows? It, it, but it raises a, a question. It, it seems like something else might be going on. So, so I had prints made. Oh, and actually, the article we read that that woman pointed out to me that I might enjoy it said that the pottery had, the pot itself had been lost or disappeared or mm. something. So I got in touch with Penn Museum, who I'd worked with. I still keep in touch with a few people up there. So it's been documented in, John, what, are the, what is the name of this book again? You said it earlier. Okay, so it's, like it's a, one of the regular publications from a... Yeah, it's called The Ceramics of Tikal, Vessels from the Burials, Caches, and Problematic Deposits. Who, who produced the book? Is that you, Penn, maybe? Yeah. Penn Museum? Let's see. Tikal Report number 25, Part A. And, uh, yeah, uh, University of Pennsylvania, the University of Museum, 1993. Okay, so... That was long after I did this. Uh, It says T. Patrick Culbert, and series editors are William R. Coe and William A. Haviland. So who said that the bowl is missing? Well, in this... No... In the article, I have it somewhere, 
that I, I know the woman who wrote it. She was she worked down there for one one of the years I was there. Uh, Hadlam Holy Nudge, and she uh, she said it in the article that the ball was missing. Uh, I called the museum and I said I have this uh, original rubbing that I did of this referred him to the article which they are aware of. Whereas they wanted the, my rubbing, which I sent them eventually. So they said the ball was gone, and I heard from two people, one who's the ar- head of the archives and someone else, an archaeologist at Penn, and they, one of them said that the ball had been left in the car in Guatemala City by archaeologists who was taking it maybe to the museum there to be kept. I'd, I think we weren't allowed to bring those things back to the States, hmm. but they had a lot of storage at the, at the, out at the camp. That person, he said, well, I heard that the car was stolen. And another person said they had heard that someone had got broken into the car and taken the, mm. the vessel. Now, it's too, someone who would do that then must think it's valuable. Yeah. And was going to sell it on the black market, which right. there's a big one there. Yeah. So in two different modes. Or someone stole the car, though. You don't know. They might have taken out the battery and something and junked the car <laughs> and the ball. So. Yeah. So it was documented in this book that was uh, published in 93? Yeah, kind of a university. And did they note in the book that that the bull is nowhere to be found? or This does not mention that it was missing. Um, I mean, I I can read this short paragraph. It kind of describes it. What does he say? He says, uh, so it's figure A on page. There's no page number. It's part of figure 128, but it says... Uh, unnamed incised type, cylindrical tripod, three feet, um, hourglass variety. This vessel was surely imported. The vessel was badly burned, and it is impossible to say whether the slip was originally black or orange. Incised design shows Mexican individuals and architectural forms. The shape with its large diameter and relatively short short sides is outside the dimensions of cylindrical tripods made in the Maya era and closer and closer to those common in central Mexico. Feet are similar to those in figure so-and-so. Such feet are common on cylindrical tripods at Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan. Photo black and white, green, and Mahali Nagy, uh, 1966. Yeah. You, you, said, you said something when he was reading. You said they called him Mexican. Oh, they, they called the... The, the, the author. Yeah, because Teotihuacan is from in Mexico. Hmm, okay. They're not usually called Mexican. Mexican's kind of a modern name, you know. Yeah. Aztecs were one thing. Mixtecs were another, you know. I wonder if, like, the, the things that w- were found with it, you know, would help. Yeah, yes, they, they, they do describe another bowl that, that they sort of compare it to. It's different from the previous bowl. But that, that's something I'm sure they've looked into. In Mahoy Nudge's article, where, where, where I saw it, I have it somewhere, she, she talks about that, you know. It seemed that in this problematical thing, there were various things buried, so it didn't hang, you know, it wasn't all from one time and place. It was like someone took odds and ends and reburied them there. Maybe the pot was, yeah, pot already broken, perhaps. Yeah, and they say this this other one is also obviously imported, so I don't know if oh. they were found together, but, but it's different in design. 
or it could have been uh, politically um, inappropriate to display uh, vessels from the from that culture who just invaded you're, us. You know, you're right, <laughs> and they got rid of it. We yeah. don't want this around the house or the palace or wherever. Yeah. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? This guy, a couple thousand years ago, made this, and it's a lot of work, really. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, and you had to do it by hand. And then it gets lost for, buried for, you know, a thousand years, and it gets found again, lost again, and I happen to have made a rubbing of it. Yeah. So the, Can you imagine the guy making it and, and being able to imagine this conversation we're having now and you know and and this rubbing and huh. oh yeah yeah it's nice well listen uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this because i could talk another it was a pleasure <laughs> I, I could i could and i think that um you managed to convey the hardships and the uh, joys of uh of going on this adventure and i think it is an adventure um, it kind of was. Among other things, I, I learned to be quite fluent in Spanish, you know. So my, so this guy Saifuk was the, the guy who worked with me, Saifuk Chen, and uh, he said there's a big party this weekend for uh, Georgetown, you know, grad students, and so I went to the party, and and he said and he, they were taken by a thing they, that I had learned Spanish. So he said, Bob, I want to introduce you to someone. And he took me up to his mother-in-law yeah. and said, here's someone who speaks your language, Mila. And so we chatted in Spanish. I ended up marrying her. Oh, well, the, now there's a reason to learn Spanish. You can meet, <laughs> yeah. you can meet your future wife. Yeah, so without this trip, you may not have been fluent in Spanish. And right. May not have and I wouldn't have met Mila and, yeah. and uh, had I, five kids, the fifth of which is uh, my wife. <laughs> See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused. You know, I forgot to ask Bob one question. I'm fascinated to find out what it's like to fly on a Douglas DC-3.